Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking about vaccines and misinformation with Professor Heidi Larson, the founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project. She is Professor of Anthropology, Risk, and Decision Science at the Department of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She is also Clinical Professor at the University of Washington's Department of Global Health and is Guest Professor at the University of Antwerp in Belgium. Her research focuses on the analysis of social and political factors that can affect uptake of health interventions and influence policies. Today, she talks to us about her new book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away. For full transparency, this interview was recorded on the 26th of November, 2020. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Professor Heidi Larson now. Dr. Heidi Larson, uh, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Nice to be here. Um, I just thought we'd start with uh, you telling us a bit about yourself and your career um, and the unlikely connection that you had between vaccines and anthropology. Yes. Um, well, I, I didn't set out in anthropology to be studying all these things about vaccines, but I, I was always interested in health. Um, and uh, ended up spending most of my career working in health, but from the perspective of what are the social, political, and other things that nudge people to make decisions one way or another. And I landed, um, I had worked a lot in in AIDS before and saw how powerful all the non-medical interventions were and somehow ended up in in vaccines uh, with the big launch of Gavi, I was uh, asked by UNICEF to to work on the introduction of these new vaccines and really saw what what looked like a growing um, epidemic, as it were, or many little epidemics of questioning and refusing. So um, that's, and the more I investigated these stories, the more I said, we need to measure this. We need to get some data around it because the big question I got was when I tried to say, Houston, we've got a problem, people said, how much? How much of a problem? Um, and so I left UNICEF and set up the Vaccine Confidence Project to start to measure it, to start to look at it globally, to start to look at what were the types of concerns, develop an index, and have some metrics around this complicated space. <laughs> And what kind of um, methodology does that involve when you're, you know, trying to gauge that public sentiment and emotions around, particularly the COVID nineteen vaccines that might be coming out? Well, I set up the Confidence Project ten years ago, so we have quite a quite a an archive, a database. Um, we do a mix of uh, we developed a vaccine confidence index, which is survey based, nationally representative samples. In bigger countries, we do subnational, uh, and that's really some core questions about the uh, perceived importance, safety, uh, effectiveness, and compatibility with religious beliefs of vaccines. And we've been doing that. We just launched a big paper looking at five years of that data over time and place and how variable it, it has been going up in some places, down in others. 
um, very much related to kind of politics and and conflict and other issues, um, uh, historic and current. Um, and we also, in the meanwhile, have built out multiple platforms to be streaming social media data from not every country or places on the same platform. So we're really streaming from a lot of different platforms, different languages, and really have a core set of things that we're looking for across all of them and um, watching it change over time. I do feel that COVID is definitely an opportunity to sort of change things around. I mean, if these vaccines are successful and they can stamp out this global pandemic, is there hope for misinformation coming to an end around vaccines or do you think it's a big uphill battle? Well, I don't think we'll ever rid the world of misinformation and and questioning around vaccines. Um, And I think a certain level of questioning is is not a bad thing in a democratic world uh, or where there is democracy. Uh, I think it's just when it starts to move into people who become rigid and not open, um, that's when it becomes more problematic. Um, But I do think and fully agree with you that um, COVID and the opportunity of a vaccine is an absolutely huge um, opportunity to change change the relationship with publics and, and build trust. If we mess it up, it's also I'm going to take a toll on vaccine confidence more broadly because vaccine, what we see is people's um, willingness to take a vaccine is highly related to their trust in government uh, or distrust. Um, It's related to perceptions of uh, the motives of industry. Uh, There's a whole, whole mix of um, issues, but certainly um, if, if we can do a good job with, kind of preparing publics for this and engaging them and listening to them as we move forward with whatever COVID vaccines make it to the public, uh, it can only help. Um, but we'll see. It's it's a difficult time now. Hmm. Um, and I also wonder if you could talk to us a little about your book, Stuck, How Vaccine Rumors Start and Why They Don't Go Away. Like, who did you have in mind when, when you were writing this book? I had the world in mind, actually. <laughs> um, I, uh, of course, I was playing with, you know, stuck like an injection, but also stuck in the conversation because I've seen, particularly in the context of social media, but even before then, because I left UNICEF to start um, the Vaccine Confidence Project before social, before Facebook opened their doors, before Twitter, before we had Google, but that was about it. So these these emotions were already brewing, but they've been just amplified in, in different ways. So Stuck is reflecting on the last 10, 20 years of my own research, but looking at uh, what are these drivers behind and why do certain rumors, um, fear of sterilization from rumors, fear of being counted, um, you know, the, the kind of rumors that we're hearing now about Bill Gates, um, you know, having a motive to not just be counting people, but, you know, tagging them so that he can follow them and control them. Um, Those types of uh, perceptions are very old. Uh, They're way before um, 
we even had chips to put in arms. But this, particularly for marginalized and um, populations, the idea of being counted, of being followed, uh, and then others who are just the whole idea of any level of government control um, is r- resistant. And it's kind of, I mean, George Orwell wrote about all this. This is this is not a new anxiety um, in the public. So uh, in that sense, in the book, I talk about, you know, some of the roots of this and how rumors, you know, they come up when they have an opportunity and then they sleep. And then when there's a new opportunity, like COVID, lots of uncertainty, lots of questioning, um, they come up and they thrive. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, as of today, we got the results for three vaccines that seem somewhat optimistic. Like, we have reason to be optimistic, I think. Um, But I just wonder, can these vaccines stamp out the virus? What What are some of the things that could hinder that? Well... It depends how many people are willing to take the, the vaccines. Um, I hear estimates from 60 to 70% needed. Some say a bit more, some say a bit less. Um, for that size of uptake, that amount of uptake to actually have any kind of population benefit in protecting people against COVID. Um, it, if it doesn't reach that many individuals um, will benefit from it, but it won't have that same kind of population benefit. Um, and the, uh, the surveys we're seeing globally um, are not showing those high levels of uh, acceptance. You don't know until actually the vaccine is ready what people do. I mean, look at political opinion polling, people can change their mind. Um, they uh, and particularly in the case of vaccines, because you know we still don't have the final final information on these. We've got some indication of how effective they might be. We're still waiting for more information, and it also depends when the, the vaccines become available, vis-a-vis what the state of the pandemic is. Because with H1N1, for instance, in 2009, there was a point where the threat felt imminent, and people were more willing to take the vaccine. But by the time the vaccine was ready, even though it was perceived as being too quick, it came at a time where people were feeling like, well, it's not going to be as bad as they thought. You know, it's all about timing. We see that in the surveys we're doing since the beginning of COVID. It's gone up and down. In um, June, um, May, June, uh, there were 7% of people in the UK who said they would definitely not take this vaccine. And that's up to 17% that would not take it. But that started to drop a little bit because then it resurged. So people, you can see that the spikes in willingness or not very much reflect the state of the epidemic. And and I think some people have been concerned about the fact that, um, you know, this was developed very quickly. But does that mean, isn't that just because governments were really throwing their weight behind this and there was a lot of, you know, there was a push to get this out. It doesn't mean that it wasn't necessarily done properly, right? Um, but that's right. And and when people say, oh, this normally takes eight, 10, sometimes 15 years, that's true. But um, as you say, a different context also, um, you know, when Ebola, when the West Africa Ebola uh, outbreak happened, the global health and scientific community realized there was no emergency funding for research. 
for trials. There was emergency funding for control measures, like, you know, uh, whatever going in and treating and, and isolating and whatever, but there wasn't for trials. So because of that, there was a funding mechanism, CEPI, Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, that was ready to fund these trials, which we've never had before. So already trials could get up and running much quicker. Governments too weighed in, um, as you say. And also, we have a lot of new technologies that were not used in previous vaccine development, which have allowed uh, different kinds of processes to move quickly. Administrative processes have shortened a bit. Safety measures have not shortened at all. That is the one piece of the development that has not shortened. And I really want to make a timeline with the different pieces of things that happen normally and show that it's it's the other pieces of the pipeline, except for the safety, that have been shortened. So nobody wants to compromise safety. It would be bad for industry. It would be bad for government. It would be bad for populations. It's in nobody's interest to make a vaccine and, and have it delivered that is not safe. And I wondered if you could talk uh, briefly about, you know, some of these trials have said there's 70% efficacy rate, or others have 90, over 90%. You know, what exactly does that mean for the herd immunity aspect of that? If it's only 70%, does that mean more people need to be vaccinated beyond that 60 and 70% threshold you were talking about? Yeah, if there's lower efficacy, you do need more people to take it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Um, and from your perspective, what does that mean for journalists? Like, we need to be obviously stamping out this misinformation, and a lot of journalists have done amazing work throughout this pandemic. But you know, what what can we do to make sure that these vaccines, if obviously if the data backs up, but that we're helping people to understand the benefits of this, and that this is probably safer than not taking it, right? Yeah, absolutely, and I also think that we have to be careful with the. Um, deleting the misinformation without putting something else in that space. Because the reason people migrate to misinformation is because they're not finding the answers to their questions. So we should use and listen to misinformation to understand what are the kinds of issues that people are trying to find information for. Because if they're all migrating to certain pieces of misinformation, they're not getting what they need um, somewhere else. So let's not delete it without giving an alternative story. So I think that from a journalistic point of view, that's really important. Even though we don't have a lot of definitive information and it's a time of learning, we can at least fill that space with something relevant, even if it says we're not totally there yet, but you know, we can. We have a lot of confidence about X, Y, and Z. Talk about the development process. Talk about why it's shorter. Just keep people engaged in a positive, informed way, and don't just leave the space empty because they'll go right back to where they got the misinformation in the first place. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about social media platforms and what role they play in this. I mean, there's a lot of closed groups on Facebook. I mean, I know that they're trying to do their bit, but what do you see is 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 a big problem at the moment in that space with misinformation around vaccines and the anti-vaxxer crowd? I think one of the bigger challenges are the posts and the things out there that are not explicitly uh 
misinformation. They're seeding doubt and dissent. They're asking questions. They're provoking a highly skeptical population. And that's a much harder thing to, you can't delete doubt. And I, I think that um, that's one of the things I'm working very closely with, um, with Facebook in particular, in looking at different ways to rein it in, at least mitigate the impact of it. Because one of the big ways that these social media platforms can help is slowing down and reining in the absolute amplification of risk that's going on. The pieces of the information, you know, you can clip them, but they're going to go somewhere else. So I think, you know, if you shut down Facebook tomorrow, which is not really gonna, not going to happen, it would it would not change this problem. You, you might have a little bit less, but it wouldn't take long for the same issues to pop up in other places. So I think um, before we wag our fingers at any one social media platform or all of them, I think we certainly as a global health community need to do a better job of engaging publics and getting them the right information. So they're not going off looking for another story. Yeah. Um, I think we all have that friend who's kind of skeptical and or maybe even watch some of these videos or don't believe COVID's real or, or, or they don't want to take the vaccine or they, they don't want to be the first to take the vaccine. That's a lot of stuff I've heard. What do you, yeah, how, what do you yeah. say to someone like that? I hear that one a lot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even a pharmacist said that to a friend of mine. I was like, Oh, that's great. That's very comforting. Uh, but I mean, yeah. how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, and I'm, I'm always fascinated because it, what, it, what really is so clear is that this is not about, education. This is not about information at the end of the day. Um, there's a lot of people who have the best information at their fingertips, and that's that's not what's going on. That's It's emotions. For some people, they feel like it's a value thing. Um, I have my principles. Um, I, you know, particularly when it comes to things that are natural, that's another big um, suspicion about vaccines as not being natural. And, and particularly with the RNA vaccine, there are anxieties that it manipulates your DNA, which is absolutely not the case. But we see some of these GMO, anti-GMO groups now leaping into this space saying, great, you know, first they're trying to feed us GMO and now it's GMH genetically modified humans. But using very graphic, scientific-looking images, these groups are not anti-science. They just have a very different interpretation of it. We've done some recent control trials because a lot of people ask me, how much impact does this misinformation really have? Doesn't it just, I mean, isn't it too extreme for most of the people in the population to be influenced? Well, we found quite a significant impact. We took 8,000 people, nationally representative, 4,000 in the U.S., 4,000 in the U.K. Um, We interviewed all of them about COVID experiences in general. And by the way, would you be willing to take a COVID vaccine if approved, safe and effective? Then we took 1,000 in each country and showed them some basic scientific information, fact-based to the extent we had it. Um, And then we showed 3,000 in the U.S., 3,000 in the U.K., the five most frequently circulating pieces of misinformation. So in the U.K., 54% said up front they would take it, 41% in the U.S. said they would take the vaccine. 
They're not high rates, by the way. They're under herd immunity. Um, and then uh, we found in the UK, there was a 6.4 uh, percentage point drop down to 48% saying they would take it after having seen those pieces of information. And the pieces that were the most influential were the ones that looked a bit sciencey. Um, I mean, there was one that looked like a, a page out of a genomics textbook and had that, you know, uh, tagline about now GMH. Um, and that had more impact than, for instance, a very Bollywood type image of Bill Gates holding syringe as if it was a rifle in his hand, you know, out to get you. I mean, that also had an impact, but not nearly with the same way um, that the scientific looking images had. So they're looking for science and a lot of them will say, we're not against science, we want better science. We want certain science. Science is not certain by nature. So that's a bit of a challenge. Mm, interesting. Um, and I just wondered, are there any other resources that you could point people to um, on the Vaccine Confidence Project or to sort of educate and, and anything that journalists can do, you know, or, or read up on? What do you recommend? What, what resources, in addition to your book, of course? <laughs> yes. Well, our website, vaccineconfidence.org, we are in the midst of overhauling it because we have a lot of streaming of social media data, a lot of survey data, and we're going to, we're... Uh, just finalizing a dashboard so that people can come and, and get um, go check a country or, or find out what they can. But there are, um, yeah, uh, what are some of the other um, groups? Uh, the vaccine, I think an, an excellent resource is Vaccine Safety Net. It is uh, WHO hosted, but it's not, it's, remember the old good housekeeping seal? Um, this is like um, the, the, the Vaccine Safety Network reviews and approves um, websites, uh, and we're one of, the, one of their websites, um, that they review and say, this is credible. This is, you know, a good place to get data or, you know, you can trust what's on it. Um, and they do that for vaccine safety. So I think that's because then what I like about that is that it gives you a choice. And people want a choice. And that's been a real um, problem in general with the pro-vaccine rhetoric sentiment. It's very kind of central, homogenous, say this, versus the anti-vaccine, which has a, a lot of different flavors and colors. Um, and so for the public, with their multitude of different concerns and different anxieties, they have a lot to choose from. And there are a lot of people, I mean, less people but more diverse groups. So I think that's something to learn from. And that's what I like about the, the VCN, the Vaccine Safety Net. It gives you options. Right, absolutely. Um, and is there anything next coming out for you know the Vaccine Confidence Project, like any new reports, or should we just look out for that tracker that you mentioned? I think keep an eye on the tracker. We just released last month in the in the Lancet um, our uh, global trends in vaccine confidence uh, that has quite a bit in it, just as a, a mapping of what's going on. Uh, what's interesting in there is that we see, you know, Europe got a little bit better. It was really the worst in the world in in 2015, 
and is still one of the lower end in terms of confidence. But we see like Northern Africa getting more skeptical. We see um, countries in South America that historically have been like the poster child of vaccine enthusiasm has is w- really wearing at the edges. So you see, um, and you see how diverse it is regionally. And on top of that, we're looking at, you know, how consistent that is with COVID willingness. Marvelous. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. That was very interesting. Thanks so much. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? Why not subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts? I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.